So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 17. It says 1 to 5, it's 1 to 15. It says 1 to 5, it's 1 to 15. I'm going to read the whole passage in English, then I'll stutter step through it. Closely, we'll read the whole passage in Korean. <laughs> when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphibolus and then Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world are now here. <laughs> Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of noble character, or more noble character, sorry, than those of Thessalonica. And they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a prominent number of Greek women and Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who encountered Paul brought him to Athens. Sorry, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> อ่าปวยกาโกดอปลาออลอดอปะดอบเวตะพามะสอปอลูดอสอสิลาเลตะกอคาสูอ่าสูเบริลอดอตุเวดาเลอะเลนิเวลปายูดาโพอ่าบู
Paul's been escorted out of Philippi. And if you haven't listened to last week's sermon that Derek preached, I'd encourage you to go online and do so. It was outstanding. Paul moves then from Philippi to Thessalonica. And he does what is common to him. He goes to the synagogue. It's 161 kilometers from uh, Philippi to Thessalonica, so this would have taken a few days to get there. He goes to the synagogue and he spends three Sabbaths in the synagogue. We don't know if there were three Sabbaths in a row. As you read the language of uh, the first and second Thessalonians, you recognize that Paul was in Thessalonica for much longer than just three Sabbaths. Likely several months. You can get that from the language of the books. Just read through First and Second Thessalonians later today. But on three Sabbaths, he's there. Note the language that it says. He reasoned from scriptures. To explain and to prove that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. The Jewish people were convinced that the Messiah would be an earthly kingly ruler. Who at this stage in Israel's history would usurp Roman rule. Free the Jewish people from its tyranny. And once again establish the Jewish people as the world power. A suffering Messiah, as you would read in the book of Isaiah, was something foreign to them, something they could not conceptualize. And then you take that further to a dying Messiah, something that they couldn't fathom. And yet, not only is there a Messiah who suffers, but a Messiah who dies. And so now, Paul, the apostle, is reasoning with everyone that this is what scriptures had said all along. He's pointing them to the Bible. He's using scripture with them. He's showing them who Messiah is. He talks about the historical Jesus in verse 3. This Jesus I proclaim to you. 
He is the Messiah. And a number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women are persuaded and believe. Paul starts in the synagogue knowing that there are people there who've come to worship the true God and yet aren't in full understanding of who Messiah is. And so the Apostle Paul wants the people to understand who this Messiah is. He uses the scripture to show them that this Jesus who lived and died is him. And a group of them believe. When I contrasted Acts 13 and 14 a number of weeks ago, and we'll do this this week and next week as well. As next week, Paul is in Athens, and again, his dialogue is very different than when he's in a Jewish synagogue. We recognize, although we feel like we're in Athens, that there are still lives all around us where God is moving in people's hearts. And so we need to be asking ourselves how we go about finding those people. Where are the synagogues of our day? Now the synagogues of our day are likely not actual synagogues or Jewish gathering places. Though for some of you, you might find that some of your Jewish neighbors are open to dialoguing about the fact that Christ is indeed, or Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah. But we have immigrants and refugees coming to our country from all around the world. Previous to the pandemic, they were talking 250 to 300,000. Coming out of the pandemic, they're talking numbers between 300 and 350,000. Most people coming from all different parts of the world are theists. They believe in a higher power in a God. Whether they're Sikh or Muslim or Buddhist. And a mystic in nature. They believe in a higher power and we have the opportunity to engage as we sit with them. To talk to them about the Bible. Show them who Jesus is. Explain to them our faith. And I find people from other cultures are very open to dialoguing about faith. They're also wanting to know about Canadian custom and culture. When we established Lightway, 
Our church plant in the East End. They had great opportunities to share their faith when they hosted a Canadian Easter dinner or a Canadian Christmas dinner. People from all over want to come to see what a Canadian dinner would look like. And so we have that opportunity today. But it's not only them. Through our youth ministries and coffees on, our young adults, our children's ministries. God brings in dozens into the hundreds of people every week into our facility. Who don't know him yet. And we have the chance and the privilege and the opportunity to share God's love with them. I know we always do so with some type of message. But we need to do so personally as well. Sitting across the table from someone. Engaging in dialogue with them. I think of soccer. I'm thankful the first two weeks coming out of the pandemic that many of our parents have gathered with each other talking at soccer. But now it's time as we gather to be praying about who can I talk to at soccer? Who can I engage in conversation with? As coaches who are sharing messages, to be thinking about which children is God at work in? Which lives is he grabbing a hold of? That was Paul's whole strategy. I'm going to speak into the lives of people where I know God is already moving. It's patterned all through the book of Acts. And it needs to be something we do as well. Well, the other Jews are jealous, it says in verse 5. They go to the part of the city where they know there's rioters and rebels. They form a mob, they start a riot. They go to the house of Jason. We know nothing about Jason except that Paul was staying there. They drag him out just because he's associated with Paul and Silas. And they have two charges. These men are causing trouble all over the world. And they defy Caesar's decree saying there's another king named Jesus. And so here we have again controversy. Hostility. Opposition to the faith. Now that shouldn't surprise us. When Andre Schutten was here a couple of weeks ago, he did a masterful job in his Wednesday evening session 
talking about the various spheres in life that either we're aligned to or that have influence in our world. The sphere of government, the sphere of family, the sphere of educators. The sphere of employers. And for most of Canada's history, we would see that the overarching sphere of all those spheres is the sphere of Christ. But in the last number of years, that has shifted. That ideology has changed in Canada. No longer is it commonly believed that Christ is the sphere over all spheres. It's now commonly believed that the state is the sphere over all spheres. That the state is the sphere over the family. The state is the sphere over the church. The state is the sphere over education. The state is the fear or the sphere over everything. In their day, they believed it was Caesar. Caesar was king. So when they heard there was another king, they couldn't believe it. And it's the same in our day. When we declare that what we believe and the way we live is based on what God has said because he is the king. We hit opposition. But he is the king. He is the creator of all things. He sustains them by his might and will. And he is the king. We have a hard time relating to kings and queens. We see the Queen of England celebrating 50 years of reign. It's all over in the papers. And she is not much more than a figurehead. With a lot of money and very little power. But kings are in sovereign control, full, full control. Over every decree, over every law, over every life in their kingdom. And the state is convinced that it is the king. And yet we know Jesus is. So we shouldn't be surprised if we push back on some things and say, no, Jesus is king. That there's going to be opposition. As people come to faith in Christ. Our disciple to follow him and walk with him. Well, then they ship Paul off to Berea because of the opposition. There's 73 kilometers between Thessalonians or Thessalonica and Berea. Again, note the pattern in verse 10. He goes to the synagogue again. 
And it says the Bereans were of more noble character. They received the message with great eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if it was true. They took everything Paul said and they aligned it with the Bible and said, is it true? The, the Bible was their standard, their guide. Is what Paul's saying true? Now note, a great number of prominent Greek women and Greek men believed. Twice prominent women are mentioned in this passage in Acts 17. So, numbers of influential women in business and in power are saved along with a number of men. They examined the scriptures and upon the examination of scriptures they did what? It says they believed. Verse 12, as a result, as a result of what? Of examining the scriptures. As a result of examining the scriptures, they came to the place where they were like, Paul's right. What the apostle has said is true. And again, they faced opposition. Verse 13 tells us that the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching. So they walked the 73 kilometers to stir up trouble there. It shouldn't surprise us that people are going to be that opposed to the gospel. I mean, that is quite a commitment. They're going to leave their lives and their, their livelihoods, their, their vocations for several days. Because they're in such opposition to what Paul is saying. So should it surprise us that laws are being created in our land that are in opposition to the gospel? When the state thinks it's king, but Jesus is? It shouldn't surprise us at all. And then they went to Athens. Paul was there, Silas and Timothy to join him later. The group of us that formed Noetic Shift. Small group of four pastors across our city that ran numbers of events prior to the pandemic. We met again this week to brainstorm a whole list of topics that we can bring back to the city. To engage in public discourse. Issues of the gospel. 
that relate to the kingship of Jesus and to dialogue about what that looks like. We're taking a month to pray through all these issues and then to begin to invite people into our city again to dialogue with these issues or about these issues at times with unbelievers. We're hoping to have actual dialogue in some of these forums. A converted Muslim to Christianity with a local imam. Bringing Andy Bannister back, someone I really appreciate to debate a local atheist. These are things we've done previously. Hosting a mayor's breakfast like we did before with mayors, city councillors, MPs, MPPs, uh, board of directors were there from the education system. Where we can get engaged with the gospel. And it's not going to surprise us if there's opposition. Even fierce opposition. So if you begin to think about your life, where is God at work? With your family, with your friends, with your neighbors? Where do you see the Spirit of God moving? In some of the programs that our church runs? And can you engage in conversation with those people where God is at work? Helping them to examine the scriptures and see who Jesus is. Quickly, I want to talk about how we can trust the Bible. Because all this rests on whether or not we can trust scripture. As James North has worked alongside of the Karen congregation, we've led three Bible studies. Close and Marcio leading one with their leaders. Priscilla, Maria, and Victoria leading one with their young women. Myself, Jesse, and Wally, who's one of their young men. Leading a study with their young men. And you may know we've seen about 16 to 18 of them come to faith in Christ, having baptized 12 of them now. Because we want to show them from the word. What God has said. And you may think that it's a one-way street, we only have something to offer, but we have much to learn. I was in Toronto last week preaching. And so Derek preached here at the Quran service. And he was preaching out of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew. Around not to worry about anything. Don't worry about what you'll wear or what you'll, what you'll eat. And on the, coming up to the sermon, he said to me, Dwayne, 
I was looking for Derek in the room. I found him. How do you preach a message like this to people who've lived through it? Who fled for their lives and ended up in refugee camps and, and have had to learn how to do this at a level that I've never had to. I said you'd be honest about it. And you preach the text. And he did. And I heard he did okay. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> People said better than okay. He did, he, did, he did a great job Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. Quickly, I'm going to walk through some passages. I've done like six weeks series on scripture. I'm going to take six minutes and do it. But I want to focus on one aspect. What does Jesus believe about the Bible? What did he believe? It's a sermon I preached six or seven years ago. Some of you will remember it. If you do, I'm sorry. Firstly, Jesus views the Bible as authoritative. In John chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, as he's quoting from the Psalms to prove his point, he throws in this little phrase, Scripture cannot be set aside. Or you could say Scripture cannot be broken. He takes an obscure passage out of the psalm to prove his point. This is John 10, and he says, Scripture can't be set aside. It can't be broken. And so he believes it's authoritative. He also believes Scripture is everlasting. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets. This is Matthew 5. I've come to fulfill them. He says, until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen. None of it will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so he never corrects a word from Scripture, but he rightly applies it. And then the apostles apply it given the accomplished work of Christ. So Jesus says scripture is authoritative. Jesus says scripture lasts forever. It's everlasting. Thirdly, he says it's historically accurate. On several occasions, he quotes talking about Adam and Eve. Noah and the flood, Abraham, Moses. In Matthew 24, he treats the flood as a real historical fact. 
In Matthew 12, he talks about Jonah as a historical fact. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a big fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He treats the entire Old Testament as historically accurate. As everlasting and as authoritative. He treats the whole Old Testament as God's word. His very word. There's a number of examples of this, but let me give one. In Matthew 19, when he's talking to the Pharisees about divorce and remarriage. He quotes from Genesis 1 and he says, haven't you read? That in the beginning the creator made male and female. And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and become one flesh. Listen, you gotta listen to this. Or you'll miss it. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, God said these words. In Genesis 1, it's the narrator who records them, and he doesn't attribute them to God. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 1, there's just the narration, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, God said these words. What does that mean? That Jesus believed even the narration of the Old Testament, what the Old Testament writers were writing, were the very words of God himself. All of them. In Mark 12, he's quoting King David. And he says, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. So he believes that the Old Testament is also inspired by God. Scripture is inspired by God. And in Mark 12, when he's talking to the Sadducees, he says that they are in error because they do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. He equates the scriptures with the very power of God. And so Jesus views scripture as authoritative, everlasting, historically accurate. He views scripture as inspired, God's very words, his very power. Isn't that good news? That's how Jesus viewed the Bible. I mean, all kinds of people say to me, well, Dwayne, I just want to trust what Jesus said. 
They'll tell me silly things like they're a red letter Christian. I'm like, that's, that's nice. Do you know Jesus believed the whole of Scripture is red letter? He is the spoken word. Who became the incarnate word. And all of it is his. Granted by the Spirit. It is great news. And so when the Bereans were hearing what Paul was saying about God and Christ. They examined the scripture, they dug into the Bible. Andrew, you guys can come up. Do you dig into the Bible? When you hear new concepts and thoughts, do you dig into the Bible? Do you search the scripture so that your belief about who God is and how you should live is aligned with it. Secondly, as God begins to use you in the lives of other people, neighbors, friends, family, kids at soccer, their parents coffee's on the hub youth ministry a colleague at work are you praying Lord whose life are you working in and when you see God working in their life do you bring them to the Bible not about all the issues they may want to talk about. Although I don't want to just ignore those issues. But about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's one of the reasons I love Christian Explored. It takes us through the Gospel of Mark. And then as you share Christ with them and disciple them, to teach them to examine everything they hear by God's word. Jesus trusted scripture. His view of scripture was one as authoritative and everlasting the power of God inspired. The very words of God. Completely historically accurate. When people come to me and say, well, Dwayne, I don't like this or that out of the Old Testament or this or that out of the New Testament. I only like what Jesus says. I'm like, you can't. Jesus loved the word. He trusted it. When Satan attacked him, what did he do? He quoted from scripture. Is that your view of scripture? 
It should be a high one. This is God's word to us. And we use it to ensure that our lives are aligned with the Lord. Our belief system is aligned with the Lord. And with non-believers around us who are trying to understand who God is. As we point them to him. Because there's power given by the Spirit in the inspired Word of God. It is authoritative. It is everlasting. And it will point people to Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion now. This is a table where we celebrate the accomplished work of Christ for us. We're going to take a wafer that reminds us of the body of Christ. And juice that reminds us of the blood of Christ. This cup, as we pass it out, the Karen leaders and elders and our elders and leaders, is for anyone who's with us today who's a believer. If God has saved you, if you've crossed that line of faith, we invite you to celebrate with us today. If God hasn't saved you yet, if you're here, you're trying to figure out who God is, just pass the basket to the person next to you. In 1 Corinthians 11, it also tells us that we are to take the table in a worthy manner. Which means there shouldn't be division between you and other believers nor unrepentant sin. The good news is today as you take this cup, you can come before the Lord and ask him for forgiveness for sin. You can be united with the believer that you're not united with. I'm going to pray for the cup and the bread. We're going to sing a song as we pass the cup and the bread out, the no. cups out. And we're going to do something a little different for James North. We're going to take the bread and, and, and the cup together with everyone at the end of the song. I know often we take it through the song. We're going to wait at the end and do it together as a body of believers. So I'm going to invite the elders from the Karen congregation, the elders from James North to come forward, and I'm going to pray. We thank, we thank you, Jesus for your sacrifice for us. That your body was broken and that your blood was shed for us. That your love for us is that immense that you would die on our behalf. We thank you for the Apostle Paul's example who argued this in synagogues. 
and in public spaces reasoning and proving that you are the Christ. And so Jesus, for this sacrifice, we are ever thankful. We pray your blessing on us in these moments. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.